as a Hopi, you're taught that being an individual is one of the last things you are. You're a member of your family. You're a member of your your clan. You represent your clan. You represent your community. You represent the religious societies you belong to. You represent your village, and you represent the Hopi as a whole. And then you are an individual. Hello and welcome. My name is Ranger Melissa. And my name is Ranger Jonah. Hey, Jonah, who did we interview in this episode? Yeah, so we talked to Gerald Dawabendiwa. He is a Hopi painter and a really nice guy. It was a ton of fun to talk to him. Yeah, I love talking with Gerald and hearing about how he uses his experiences as a Hopi astronomer in his artwork. Absolutely. He was just so knowledgeable, and it was really great listening to him dive into the meaning and the culture behind his work. Turns out a lot of his work is also at the Hopi House, Mm -hmm. so if you're in the park, uh, check out his work at the Hopi House. So without further ado, Gerald. My name is Gerald Dawaventiwa. My Hopi name is Lomasaho. So we actually have two names. Uh, I guess as a side note, originally as uh, in Hopi culture, you only have one name and then your family is part of a clan. And currently there are probably a little over 30 different clans. And I'm a member of the Sun Clan. And then your name is usually associated with that clan. Um, so uh, my Hopi name Lomasaho refers to a star uh, in the constellation in the sky. Dawavitiwa is translated as rainbow or halo around the sun. So there's that association there. There are also other clans, the bear, the corn, parrot, um, a badger, and uh, various other clans. And each one has their own... Um, history and story. Um, the Hopis, we live, what, about 60, 70 miles? Which direction? <laughs> about that way. Uh, the Grand Canyon of, is a very uh, large part of our uh, our history. This is the symbolic emergence of the Hopi people into this world. Uh, the Hopi believe that there are three previous worlds. Uh, the third world became corrupted, and we found, and we wanted to find a way from that world And so this is a symbolic entry point Uh, at the bottom. There's a site in the Grand Canyon at the bottom of the Grand Canyon called the Zipapupu, which is the emergence place. And so the Hopi came through that into this world that we call Duaguatsi. And then we began um, each group separated and went into the four directions in order to explore this world and see what it what was here and what it had to offer. So each clan has their own stories that differ from others. So um, as a Hopi person, I don't speak for all the Hopis or have the authority to say that what I say is the defining history of Hopi. So you'll, you'll often find other Hopis that will have other stories or other interpretations, and that stems from their own unique journeys that they took. So like the Sun Clan, we travel with other clans south. And in our migration stories, we traveled all the way down to the end of, of um, South America until we reached a large wall of ice. 
and then we turned back and then came back up this way and eventually came to where we are now where we see as the Hopi center of the universe. So all our stories are related to the areas now that we know of as Mexico and the, the Incas and all these other other groups and places, whereas other groups had settled towards the Pacific and others towards what now is Canada and other towards uh, as far as the Mississippi River. Um, each clan, when they reached a large body of water, would turn left and then return back. So um, that's sort of the origin of, of uh, how we're connected to this, this site. And we still have uh, pilgrimages um, yearly uh, from various uh, Hopis who belong to different religious societies who come here to, um, to uh, gather among the sacred sites and areas here within the Grand Canyon. So, Gerald, you are uh, not only a Hopi tribal member, but you're also a painter that takes a lot of inspiration from um, uh, the Hopi people and the Hopi culture. Um, now, I understand you grew up in the Hopi reservation, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what it was like to grow up there, and then also if you had some early inspirations. What, what inspired you to become a painter, to do what you do today? Okay. Uh, I grew up in the Hopi village of Munkapi, which is associated with Third Mesa. There are three mesas at Hopi, first, second, and third, which are sort of low, uh, flat-topped mountains. And the majority of the villages are built on top of these mesas. Uh, My village, Munkapi, is not physically on Third Mesa, but there is a village um, on Third Mesa called Ozraivi, which today is considered the oldest continuously inhabited town in the Americas. And so they found it Munkapi. So we owe our allegiance to Ozraivi. And so that's where I grew up at. Uh, this was at a point where when I, uh, uh, we were, uh, w- well, we didn't have electricity, um, plumbing, um, or any of those modern conveniences, TV, uh, and things like that. So it was very much a very isolated um, area uh, for us. There was a, and it's a small village. There was, a, at the time, there were probably about less than 600 people who lived uh, at Munkapi. And, and so it was sort of a transitional point where as I grew up, um, my grandmother's house was the first house to get electricity. So I say it's my grandmother's house because Hopi is a matrilineal society, which means in Hopi, all the material wealth, the houses, um, all, the, all the items inside the house, vehicles now, um, the fields, they all belong to the women. And the women take care of them. So uh, for the men, we are in charge of the religious societies and and making sure that the ceremonies are performed correctly throughout the year. And so when um, when a man or when a woman marries a man in which she proposes, not the not the man, she will have a special bread called biki and um, she will make that and present it on a. Um, Hopi tray and if he accepts that tray of beaky bread then he has accepted her proposal in marriage uh, the ceremony the wedding ceremony takes some time to do it's usually tied in with the ceremony year year but at the end 
the husband will move to her village and build her a house. Um, and so she's in, she's in charge of that, she, and, and she takes care of that, as well as make sure the fields are um, cared for as well. And, and as Hopi men and, and uh, family members, we um, ask permission from, from the head of the household to uh, be allowed to grow the corn and crops in the field. And so when we grow the corns and crop, we own the plants, or we are responsible for the plants uh, when they are grown. So who, who do you think owns it when it's harvested? So the women own the, 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 the plants when they're harvested. So, and they can do whatever they want with it. Uh, and, but often they'll, they'll keep it and make sure that the family. So in Hopi, not necessarily status, but the success of a home is the ability to feed the family. And in fact, my grandmother was very proud of the fact that if anyone came by even to ask for directions, she would insist that they sat down and ate first. And then after they finished eating, then she would ask, uh, why did you come here? And so she was very proud of that fact that uh, no matter who came by, she was able to feed them. And that was a very um, uh, something that she was very proud of. And so I grew up in that area. And to me as an artist, it's not, it's, there's not a real profession out there in Hopi. No one, nobody says, oh, that's the artist of the village or, or he's the best artist. I grew up with, everyone did art. My grandmother made baskets. Uh, my grandfather made crafts and arts that were related to the religious societies because they, they require certain items and objects um, for these ceremonies. I had other uncles and cousins who carved casino dolls and other uh, family um, women who made pottery. And so I, I, I grew up not knowing anybody who did not know how to do some sort of craft. So it wasn't unusual and it, was, and it, and it didn't seem out of place. And so I was inspired by a lot of uh, people there. And in Hopi, people don't tell you, oh, you need to know how to carve or you need to know how to draw. They just, if you have an interest in it and, and they see that you have an interest, they may say, oh, here, try this car here. I'll give you a piece of wood and why don't you whittle on it and see, you know, if you like that, if that's something that, you know, that's something you like or, or, or something else. So there's never that insistence that, oh, you're going to be this. And, and, and sort of try to fit you to that mold. And so it was something that I grew up with and it was something that I enjoyed because it was a way um, for me to express myself in Hopi by capturing a lot of uh, the day-to-day things. And apparently um, I was, I spent too much time on it. So uh, <laughs> it I- Happens I, to the I, best of us. I actually ended up uh, flunking first grade. I had to take it over twice and my report card said he's a very bright and promising student, but all he does is draw, and we feel that he could spend another additional year at this level. So I ended up having to take first grade twice. So and uh, so that sort of started my career. So I've been sort of drawing all my life, and of course my first inspirations was, was my grandmother and my grandfather, watching them make things, and later on, uh, being introduced to a lot of things from uh, my aunts and uncles. And then, of course, as I traveled around the village, because there are ceremonies that we do that are uh, 
taking to other villages. So I get to meet other Hopis and other other homes, and of course, you meet other artists. and 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 I was fortunate in I guess the history of Hopi in that there's we were at a transitional point because my grandfather and his father in Hopi the majority of the art was done for religious reasons it was not made for sale it was not made as fine art it was made because it needed to be made to be made for the ceremonies even my grandmother's baskets those were baskets that had practical uses they were sifter baskets there were baskets used to carry items there were baskets to give away um, as a custom is and so everything made had a purpose and a reason that fit within Hopi culture so there was no such thing as I'm expressing myself or I really want to talk about my angst through this painting so it wasn't only it was basically part of my grandfather's gener- my father's generation and then of course my generation that you begin to have artists you did have some who were famous in the past like Nampeo who was a very famous potterer but her art was the pots she made for the majority were you know they used up for mixing bowls for cooking bowls and of course the early tourists especially from here you had the Fred Harvey company who would send out tourists to Hopi and they discovered the pottery and they wanted and Nampeo became very famous and one of the side notes for that was um, Nampeo noticed that people paid more for her uh, pots because she was touted as the famous Hopi potterer. And so she encouraged other Hopi women to bring their pots and she would sign them <laughs> because she wanted them to have, you know, she wasn't trying to cheat people, but she want uh, in Hopi you want to be part of the community you want to help the community rise together and so she signed their pottery so they could get just as much money that hers got so there are a lot of pots out there that she never made but they have her name on it and she's actually one of the earlier Hopis that signed her work because back then nobody signed their work you, you made an item and it kind of just rotated into the uh, into the culture uh, there are these uh, wicker plaques that were given to the young girls during a ceremony called Bawamaya. And the girls kind of used it almost like a currency exchange. As they got older, if somebody did a a, um, a good deed for them or, or helped them out or something, they would give that basket uh, to that person, to that Hopi person. And then down the line, that person might eventually give it to somebody else. And so it wasn't unusual that, you know, that you know one of my nieces or would would get a basket and of course she would give it out maybe a year later and then five or six years later it shows up again because somebody <laughs> did a nice and then oh i remember that basket that used to be your basket when you were little so but that's what started it you begin having these hopis like fred kabodi who did the uh, murals in the watchtower you know you had people saying oh you need to sign your name you need to it needs to be identified. And so, you know, that didn't occur until the 50s and 60s. And you had, and then that's when you begin seeing Hopis who were taught silver, uh, silversmith after World War II as an occupation. You had them, uh, some of them started signing, not all of them, but some of them began signing their names. And so that began what we, what we would, I guess, consider fine art or, or art for art's sake in a sense. But it still was grounded 
in traditional designs. Everything was very in that design. And that's what I grew up being inspired by. And so later, and then of course later on for me, finally, there was a young group of men who, well, they're much older than me now, but called Artists Hopied. And they decided to really explore or push the boundaries of what Hopi art could do. So they went through cubism and abstraction and, you know, all these other types of, of, of art forms that didn't exist in Hopi and, and even tried political, you know, uh, artwork and other things. And, but it was all have to do with, with Hopi. And they inspired me because their work was so different from, every, from everything else. And so that was sort of kind of led me to feel that this was something that I could do. And so um, I eventually, after I graduated from uh, high school, I eventually uh, went to the University of Arizona in Tucson. And so actually, it worked out after first grade. After first grade, uh, yeah. I <laughs> it's was, all I, easier from there. I was basically, I'll show you now, you know, or, you know, so... And I got a degree in, uh, well, it was majorly in graphic design and fine art, but I eventually started working in the museum field using my graphic design. And for me, the high point was I, f I, helped, I helped with uh, graphics and did Hopi consultation for the Hopi section of an exhibit called The Pass of Life, which was a 10,000 square foot exhibit. And I invited my grandfather to come down to look at what I had done. And so after he had seen everything, he turned to me and, and told me in Hopi, this is something worth doing. So in Hopi culture, you don't hear a lot of fray, uh, praise. You, a lot of stuff you do, you're expected to do it. And so to have my grandfather tell me that it was something worth doing was just the greatest compliment I could ever receive. So I was, you know, I don't think I touched the ground for a week or so from, from that and and that sort of continued leading my um, my visions. Uh, one of the challenges or one of the things that I've, I guess, in a sense, placed upon myself is, as a Hopi, you're taught that being an individual is one of the last things you are. You're a member of your family. You're a member of your, your clan. You represent your clan. You represent your community. You represent the religious societies you belong to. You represent your village, and you represent the Hopi as a whole. And then you are an individual. And so that's the last, last thing. And so you're always taught what, what you are doing. How does that reflect on everything else? And so I continue to do that now in my artwork. When I do my artwork... I always am reminded about how are other Hopis or how is my community going to feel about this and how are other people going to feel about the reflection of what I am showing Hopi to them. And so for the most part, I do not do individual personal artwork. I'm not going to talk about maybe something that happened in my personal life or that may be considered positive or negative and express it through the art medium. But, but what I do is I also, but the one thing I do is I try to instill a sense of pride towards my art in that that was something that my grandfather had taught me. He had constantly reminded me that our culture has a lot of great accomplishments and a lot of great knowledge and wisdom that we've gathered over literally thousands of years and that we are not simply 
you know, Indians or, or what, what, you know, what other people may think of us because, you know, we did not invent the aircraft or the computer, but we have other accomplishments. And those accomplishments were made um, in this type of environment, in the desert. Our priority was not to, not to leap ahead in technology, but our, uh, our aim was to integrate ourselves within our environment and survive within a very harsh desert area that has very little rainfall. So, in, in, so to do that, uh, we've genetically uh, manipulated corn and other plants to grow in a very dry desert. We've developed our own uh, agricultural system called dry farming. And we've done other things like uh, we've keep track of a, um, the movement of the suns and the planets and the moon are very important to us because we have very short growing seasons. We need to understand very specifically how the year goes, when it rains, um, and other, and when it snows, another aspect because literally our life is dependent on it. We need to know when to grow our corn, when to grow the second crop, when to harvest, and and other items. And so we have a high level of looking out through the astronomy. We see it more in a practical sense rather than a mythical or a spiritual sense. We do imply that to it, but we understand the solstices and the equinoxes and the and the and the lunar. Um, um, levels and things like that because that's important to us as well and so he instilled in me that pride that uh, we you know we do have our own accomplishments and that's why we've survived for so long and and we continue to survive and still try to maintain those we're considered one of the most traditional indigenous groups in the americas and we've been able to maintain that because we're very careful about what uh, we want to bring into our culture. And so I try to reflect that through my art and try to remind other people that, you know, this is a very uh, um, dynamic and very successful uh, culture that we, I hope that continues to continue on and survive. Yeah, and, and for those that don't know, as we talk about his art, um, uh, Gerald is a part of our cultural demonstration program. So if you come into the Watchtower tomorrow between 9 and 4, you can actually see a lot of his art up close and personal. Um, and I know you brought some here today, so we're going to talk about that in a little bit. But first, I, I just kind of wanted to dig in more into the process of actually making art. Um, how does that process go for you? Can, do you see the whole thing before you start? Do you say, I want to start with these colors and then we'll see where it goes from there? Or is there some other way that that, that transpires? Um, a lot of it is just the, you see a lot of this imagery like with the Katsina dances. We have these dances where we have these uh, spiritual beings called Katsinam that appear at the villages and they perform ceremonies and rituals and they're very colorful they have these elaborate dances and and songs and those inspire me as well it is and i've been given the opportunity to speak some to the elders and they they talk about different aspects and you know just having hearing them you know it creates that imagery in my mind that i want to capture in an art form or there's you know casinos that you want to carve and 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 depict them in the in the wooden form um uh, if you've seen these around in the shops or like the Hopi shop or down there, there's these wooden carved images of these spiritual beings and they represent different elements of, of Hopi culture. They represent um, animal life that we depend on. They de 
uh, on elements of the cosmos and even historical events. There's a, a historical event where one of the villages was attacked and one of the young women was having her hair done. And it's, a, it's an elaborate hairdo that, uh, I'm sure you've seen Star Wars, Princess Leia. Mm -hmm. Uh, they were inspired by the Hopi hairdo. It's this large world hairdo. It actually represents a squash blossom, which represents the ability to give life. And so this young woman was having her hair done that way, and she had one up, and her mother was still combing out her hair on the other side when the village was attacked. And rather than run with all the other women and elderly and children, she grabbed her brother's bow and arrow and rushed out and defended the village successfully. And so... Uh, when she passed from this world, she became a Katsina spirit. And now that Katsina shows up to remind us about uh, the strength that she had and, and, and the role of women in, in Hopi culture. And so there's that aspect. So, so when you carve a piece of wood like that, for me, it's, it's almost like a discovery because, you know, you, you always hear that, you know, from a lot of artists, like, I, you know, I'm just... You know, like some, like a lot of carvers or a lot of um, uh, people who do stone, they say, "I'm just chipping away what's not supposed to be there." That that you know that figure's already in the stone, and I kind of feel the same way because the the other thing is the wood. It's not perfect. Sometimes it has cracks in it. Sometimes it has knots in it and stuff. And so there are times when you carve it, you have to remove things uh, because. They're, you know, you know they're going to break off or you know it's going to split more that way. And in a way, it almost dictates um, what's going to come out. Sometimes the, car, the wood is, I guess, in a sense, perfect. And you can say, oh, I'm going to make a mud head or I'm going to make a snow katsina. And other times, it's just like, oh, I got to I gotta get rid of this and I get rid of that. And then suddenly it's like, oh, it's going to be a bear katsina. And you weren't, and I wasn't planning that, but it came out that way. And so... There's that kind of excitement too that sometimes you plan. I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna draw or create this specific thing, and other times it's like even I don't know what it's gonna become. I have to sort of share it with the elements, the object or the material I'm using, because the, because even even the canvas or the paper or the or the stone or the rock or whatever I'm using. You know, it has its own imperfections and those or, or perfections, and they and they do guide the creation of the artwork. Sometimes, even if you're not planning to go in that direction, and so that's sort of that that type of thing. Uh, one of the things that I guess I'm known for, or what people seem to comment about, is that my work is very bright, and I think they're not used to seeing work with that much color. But but for me, when you see the Katsinas what they wear is, you know, with the bright parrot feathers, the, the pure white cotton kilts and the red and green embroidery. It's a very colorful imagery. And I try to capture that in, in my artwork. So, but it's an, it's an ongoing process and I, and I enjoy it because sometimes you don't always know what you're going to get, even though you kind of try to plan for it. Yeah, and we also have a Hopi Katsina Carver this week. So if you come to the Watchtower mm -hmm. tomorrow, you will also be able to see what he's talking about with these wood um, sort of figurines. Yeah, and what's unusual that you'll, uh, if you notice, is that even though Hopi, we all carve Katsinas, we all paint Hopi, we or we all they do different baskets and stuff. They each have their own very unique uh, style and how they go about doing that because there are. 
literally hundreds of Hopi carvers, but they all have, but you can tell, especially some of the ones that are more prolific, exactly, oh, that's so-and-so, or, oh, I know who made this just by looking at it because they have such a distinct style. And yet they're all coming from the same, you know, point. You know, they're all, you know, they could all make the same bear katsina and they would all be different, but it's still the bear katsina. Yeah, so I was, perhaps we could bring out one of your pieces of work and, and, and talk about it a little bit. I know it's a little windy, so perhaps okay. I could help hold it. Yeah, if you want to get the, <clears throat> if you can uh, see that. This is, a, a, I guess, an enlarged version of the original. Uh, the I did a series of uh, drawings, a pro, a pro, probably more than 20 of these images, and they're all drawn with ink and copper paint and they're all done on handmade Nepal uh, paper and this is a series that there's actually a book that I eventually published and it depicts like as I was saying early all the under some of the understanding the Hopis have about astronomy and how we interpret uh, the sky and so this particular design uh, is the uh, lunar eclipse so at the top, I have the sun with the face. And in the middle, I have the earth with all the life elements in it. And then below that, in the copper paint, is the moon. So as the sun is above, I have the earth moving in front of the sun, casting its shadow against um, the moon, creating what people call like a blood or a red moon. So we're familiar with that celestial event. And in Hopi especially during the prehistoric times, um, we have Hopis who are specifically, um, are called sun watchers. They're they're, one of their roles is to track not only the sun's movement, but the moon's movement as well and, main, and maintain where the sun rises and the moon rises and, and lowers. And those are used to determine various ceremonies and rituals throughout the Hopi year. And so we're able to interpret it completely also entirely in uh, Hopi uh, symbolism. So Hopi has a huge uh, uh, collection of symbols that it uses. And in fact, um, I, could, I could draw a cloud, snow cloud, rain cloud, a cloud sprinkling, thunder cloud, billowing cloud, a cloud about to rain, a cloud that's, you know, there, there, I could do a range of uh, different uh, weather elements because they're so important in Hopi that we've developed a lot of uh, icons to determine what, you know, what each part represents or each element represents. So, so it's, a, it's a rich history of, a, of, of a design. Okay. Yeah, so to finish up our discussion about this piece of work, does anybody have any questions? All right, we'll move to the next one. Well, what we do is very, uh, various sun watchers who are located at different villages, they have one particular place that they will always stand at. And they'll either use a large uh, geological, like a butte or even San Francisco peaks as a marker, or they'll have uh, rocks close by and they'll track using those as points of reference. So if you watch the sunset, like out here, and if a Hopi came here and was able to come here every day, he might use this row of rocks here and he'll put marks into it or designs representing different aspects of 
the sun rising or the moon rising. And once you do that over literally several years and sometimes several decades, you start noticing a pattern within that. And that way you start being able to predict uh, when certain things, equinoxes, solstice, eclipses, uh, and other, and other um, phenomena start occurring and you're able to plan for them. And even when certain uh, um, stars appear in the sky, so like uh, the women have a, have a social dance that's uh, um, translated as loosely the basket dance. And that occurs when the three stars of Orion appear. But in Hopi, we see those as three maidens from the basket dance ceremony. When they appear closest down towards the earth, that's when that ceremony uh, begins. And so even with the posi even the position of the stars in the sky either determine a ceremony or it'll tell you when something is going to occur. Uh, you know, so, you know, so we, we keep track of that as well. Uh, this one, if you're familiar at Flagstaff, the San Francisco Peaks in Hopi, uh, Nuvau, I'm messing up the name, the, the name. It's, uh, it's easier when I was writing it down, but uh, we believe that that's the home of some of the Katsina spirits. They live there. And so this painting depicts the Katsina spirits uh, upon San Francisco peaks. And in Hopi, these spiritual beings not only perform ceremonies and rituals, but they remind the Hopi how to live a proper life. There are over 400 different personalities, and each one has their own history, uh, their own uh, way of personalities, um, how they dress, what songs they sing, and what rituals they do. And we have an entire religious society that's responsible for that. And that's one of the reasons why Hopi is, uh, has been able to maintain it, its traditions. Um, it's not like some other tribes where you maybe have one religious person who's in charge of maybe perhaps the knowledge of medicinal, you know, what medicines or what plants help you heal. And they may have one or two uh, apprentices. But if he dies or those apprentices choose not to follow that, then that line ends. Um, in Hopi culture, it's like going to college. We all specialize in different parts of the Hopi culture. So there is a group that takes care of the casinos, which my grandfather did. And so his entire lifetime role was to understand all these casinos. So um, he never understood all 400, but he was pretty up there <laughs> compared to me. And so that was, and that society, that's their whole role. There are other societies that uh, specialize in other aspects of Hopi culture, and that's just that part they understand. And that's how we're able to maintain our traditions so strongly because it's not kept by just one person. It's kept by a whole group, and they're all taught all that information together. So even if one or two of them... Um, passes from an accident or something un, uh, you know not expect it it doesn't die with them there's a whole society that maintains that knowledge and so i have here a lot of different casinos um that are coming here uh, we um i have a, a morning casino a casino mana a long hair and each one has their own part the long hair is known for this wonderful melodic song that it sings and it brings uh, showers, light showers when it sings. Uh, whereas this tall one, the Shalako, which, which actually rises about 15 feet tall 
in real life, he rarely appears because he's known for causing or uh, floods. There's also a female that comes with him. So they're, they're, they're not often asked to come unless there's a real drought because they're known for unpredictable weather. And so, and then there are other ones, there's in the middle with the big feathers, that is Crow Mother or Ungwansnatsamtaka. And she comes during a ceremony uh, dressed in her bridal outfit because the story is that she had just gotten married and this was a time when the Hopis were having a hard time their crops were not accessible. And as she was crossing Hopi, she heard the Hopi's prayers for help. And so she immediately headed to the village and she appeared as the sun rose, still wearing her bridal gown, followed by all these other Katsina spirits bringing fresh green bean sprouts and other foods to give to the Hopis so they could survive. And they also brought gifts to the children. And that ceremony still occurs every year. And then we have other, we have a warrior katsina, and then we have Itoi and Ahol. Uh, they're sort of called the lieutenant and his assistant. Uh, they're involved in the uh, soya ceremony. Uh, and they're uh, also when the equinox occurs, they, they come and perform a ceremony there to help the sun uh, begin its longer and or shorter days. So they all have their own purposes. There's even a katsina that shows up to remind us to clean out the springs that we depend on. So there's even some practical aspects to it. And it's all integrated into uh, Hopi culture. And so I depicted that. The last one at the top, he, uh, this is a katsina that represents the power and maintains the balance of the universe. So I have him reaching out and throwing the stars uh, into the sky. He's a very powerful uh, individual. When he comes to the villages, all the other katsinas stay away from him because they don't, because of, of his uh, energy. So he he's one kiva or one building behind all the other katsinas. They, they will not go near him. He's very deliberate. He is, uh, for me, everything he does is perfect. Every, every step he takes is very deliberate and slow and he speaks very quietly. He's a very quiet song. But it, I was I'm always amazed at his actions when he's there because everything he does, he, he uses the minimalist of energy and he deliberately, everything is deliberate. I've never seen any uh, of, you know, other Katsina like that. I've always been impressed by that, so. Does anybody have any questions that they want to ask about this particular piece? I am an audience member and I have a question. The knowledge that you're referring to, is that written down or mainly just spread via word of mouth or how does that work? It's mostly word of mouth. I mean, the, the society I belong to, um, each one is, the, the, there's, there's like a, one's called like the one horn and two horn society. Their knowledge is sacred to them. So even though we're fellow Hopis, since I'm not a member of that society, he's not going to tell me what they do, and I'm not going to tell them what I do. I mean, there is some information that we will give each other, and there is some information we will give to the general public as a whole, but we're not going to tell anyone the most sacred or the greater knowledge. Uh, in Hopi, we believe that you, that those have to be earned. You have to go through 
the stages. You have to be initiated. You have to be a part of this. You have to gain this knowledge or wisdom or, or, or other aspects as you go through life. And therefore, as you get to a certain point, then you are eligible to uh, acquire that knowledge. So, uh, so a lot of stuff. So basically, a lot of the information I, I, I talk about, mostly it's what a young child would be told because they're they're not initiated then and then when you get initiated then you're given the opportunity to learn even more knowledge um, as you get older so yeah so it's and so yeah we don't write that down you know uh, um, there is stuff that we that we do allow out but it's to us it's very rudimentary it, it's not the core of our beliefs or our, our religion. So. so being a professional artist, um, you have to travel or you do travel with your art around to art shows. Um, so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what an art show is like and maybe uh, being here at Grand Canyon doing the cultural demonstration program, mm -hmm. how that's different, how that's similar, what you maybe like or dislike about being out here at Grand Canyon. and. Uh, what it, what it's like to be an artist at these art shows? Mm -hmm. it's, it's it's kind of a challenge in a way because when I went down to the University of Arizona, I, I of course did my art and wanted to, you know, make a living off it. And as you've seen, some of my art, like the first one, it's very abstract. It's a lot of Hopi symbolism, and so there are not a lot of sh there are not a lot of galleries or not a lot of shops that specialize just in indigenous art so I would take it to other galleries that just showed all sorts of art and they say well this is too apps this is too apt you know this is Indian you need to take this to an Indian show an Indian shop and so I take it to the Indian shop and they like this is too abstract for us you should take it to the galleries <laughs> because uh, a lot of a lot of uh, a lot of uh, collectors or customers or people, they've, they've kind of have this specific expectation that when you say Indian art, you know, what comes to mind? And a lot of it tends to be art that is sort of from the 1960s or 50s on back. They, they have an idea that Indian art has to incorporate maybe feathers or uh, dull colors or or leather work and you know these certain types of things and and to them that's Indian art and so if you come up with a, a hand-blown glass vase uh, which we have a Hopi artist he was the first one to do that you know he had a hard time because they said that's not Hopi art because Hopis don't blow glass and so there's that challenge that that a lot of galleries or a lot of collectors will tend to um, to uh, pigeonhole indigenous art and of course, there are other uh, collectors who they know what the art is, and they they go after it. They 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 find specific artists who make styles that they like. But it's it's a real challenge because the, a lot of uh, native art uh, people tend to want a certain style or a certain imagery, and and if you try to go outside that, then it's it doesn't. You know, you're not going to get someone, you know, you get very few people who are interested in buying it. And so that's always a challenge. So uh, early on, I've just recently uh, really stopped doing it. But there are art shows or art fairs specifically just for indigenous artists. 
the Heard Museum in uh, Phoenix has one. There's a very famous one in Santa Fe in uh, August, November or August time where it's just all native art. And so when you go there, all the artists there are native, native. They're all indigenous and they come from all different tribes uh, or, or nations around the country. And so that's what I used to do. And it's a, it's a, it's a challenge when you want to do it as your full-time employment because you have to pay a, a fee sometimes half a year in advance. So it's like you're throwing all this money in the air, but you're not going to see a return for six months. And then, of course, you have to build up your inventory and art. you got to book your hotel. you got to get you, make sure your car is in good shape. You load in all your items and everything. You drive there and you know, make sure you get fed. And then you sit at your booth. And when you sit there, you have this imaginary money level saying, okay, it cost me uh, uh, like uh, $600 to enter the show. Uh, it, it, um, the, the hotel cost me this much. I spent this much gas. I ate made this much food. I have to make this much money just to break even. And then once I reach that, then it's profit. And then when the show's over, you go home and you start the whole thing over again. You, you know, you, and you have to, you have to, uh, um, sign up and, and pay these fees, you know, like I said, months in advance. And then you go home, you rebuild their inventory, you start drawing them more or carving or whatever you do. And then you go to the next show. And sometimes they're, uh, you know, then you go to the Hopi show in uh, Flagstaff. And then, and then one year I went to the Cherokee show in Tulsa and I have friends and family. They'll go to shows, uh, on the East coast. They'll go to shows up in Alaska. They'll go to shows, in California and Washington state and you know they'll and you know they'll be driving all over the place and a lot of them drive because you can't haul a lot of that stuff on an airplane so you know it's it's a lifetime uh, uh I had a cousin he did uh, uh he did um stone carving which was very heavy and and so he immediately he later switched to jewelry which was a lot easier to carry <laughs> But one of the funny things for me when he was doing stone carving is he priced all his artwork based on how tall it was. So if he had a carving that was 11 inches tall, it was $1,100. So and if it was 8 inches tall, it was $800. So, but he eventually switched to jewelry. But, but like, and like him for a while, it was, it's a full-time thing and you're constantly, you know, if you're not at the show, you're, you're, you're at the... Um, you're at home working all the time, you know, trying to get that inventory up. And if you're lucky, you get collectors who love your work and only your work. And so they, they constantly buy just yours. And there have been Hopi potterers who, who show up at the art shows and you, you open up at 9 a.m. and they're done by 9.30. They've sold everything they've had because their work is so popular. Um, I have a cousin who who does very elaborate katsina dolls and he carves them in one piece. He doesn't add anything to it. All Everything on there, the feathers hanging out and the jewelry hanging from the, the neck or the rattles, everything is carved from one single piece of wood and he attaches nothing to it. And his work goes for ten, fifteen thousand dollars $15,000. And he has collectors who are willing to pay that price because of the quality of the work he does. And now he's able to just stay home and carve because now he has collectors who just order from him 
and say, I want this. And so he doesn't have to go to the shows anymore. He just stays home and carves. So he's one of those one where, you know, you you say he's the successful one. But for a lot of us, you know, that's, it's a constant grind. And so, and, and it, 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 it gets tiring after a while. So, so I eventually, for me, I was fortunate enough that I eventually was able to find a way where I reproduced a lot of my art as prints and other items, and then I wholesale them uh, to various museums and gift shops, like the Hopi shop here uh, carries some of my items. And so um, I'm able to do that and stay home and not have to travel all over the place. So, so yeah, it's a, it's a challenge for, uh, uh, it's a rarely unique style of, of, of selling art that I don't think you see that a lot with a, a lot of other different artists who are not indigenous, you know, with such a like constant, you're, going here 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 coming back going you know it's like a it's a route it's you know it's like a like you know almost like circus kind of thing you know so yes it's it was it was a challenge and you know we have unfortunately reached that time about 15 minutes before the sun sets so i want to ask one last question gerald if you were to give everybody who came here tonight one sort of central takeaway or, or one thing that you wanted to re- wanted them to remember about tonight what would that be hmm, that's a good question <laughs> well as as an artist i i think i guess i just want you to uh, really look at individual native artists and really uh, uh, take the time to appreciate that or look at the art and and we've been doing this for a long time and my fellow artist who does the carvings and, and don't be afraid to ask questions about the art and, and how it's you know what he makes or it's inspiration or even um, you know you know just uh, you know appreciating and under under and understanding that because a lot of this uh, art is deeply rooted into our culture and it represents a lot of things that are important to us and mean a great deal of 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 what represents us as 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 a cultural group and as and as a people and so we're and we're very proud to to create that and and to show it to other people and we hope that you enjoy it as well so thank you very much for taking your time to stop here and uh, listen to me Canyon Speaks is a program hosted by Grand Canyon National Park and the Grand Canyon Conservancy. A special thanks to Aaron White for the theme music. This recording reflects the personal lived experiences of tribal members and do not encompass the views of their tribal nation or that of the national park. To learn more about Grand Canyon First Voices, visit www.nps.gov grca. Here at Grand Canyon National Park, we are on the ancestral homelands of the 11 associated tribes of the Grand Canyon. These being the Havasupai tribe, the Wallapai tribe, the Navajo Nation, the Hopi tribe, the Pueblo of Zuni, the Yavapai Apache Nation, the Kaibeb Band of Paiute Indians, the Las Vegas Paiute tribe, the Moapa Band of Paiutes, the Paiute Indian tribe of Utah, and the San Juan Southern Paiute tribe.